Welcome to Healthy Conversations. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Lori Zephyrin. She's the Vice President of Health Systems Equity at the Commonwealth Fund. We're also fellows together in the inaugural class of the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. Lori, welcome to Healthy Conversations. Awesome. We've known each other for a while. You're trained as a you know classic OBGYN, but you've really branched out to look at a whole bunch of other elements impacting women and health equity. One of your big steps was to move to the Veterans Administration, the VA. I've always been interested in thinking about, you know, how to ensure women have access to comprehensive health care, right, throughout their entire lives. I actually spent a year as a White House fellow in the VA. I left and practiced at Columbia for a few years, delivering babies, doing surgery, global health work. The VA actually was building out its women's health programs saw an increased number of women veterans and really had to undergo a transformational shift from taking care of predominantly male veterans to really transitioning sort of across the gender landscape to incorporate women as well. And so that was really very exciting. How do you provide care to a population that's growing? And imagine also the shift was happening within the military in general with more women, even in combat roles. Yeah. You know, imagine being a woman who served and coming to the VA and being asked, where's your husband? Where's your father? When you're the one that's been serving in the front line. So really a cultural change and then also a systems change in terms of beyond just expanding gynecology services or thinking about obstetric services, like how to make sure that there's the capacity from a clinical training perspective, but also from a systems perspective to care for the broad spectrum of new veterans that were coming into the healthcare system. Given the VA is a big system and change sometimes takes a while, any lessons there from shaping your own perception and attitudes towards women's health and how to help shift those in a large organization or society writ large? I spent a lot of my career at the the systems level, really thinking through, you know, how can we design systems that work better for the people in them? Our systems are are designed to silo women's health into just sort of this bread box of these are the things you focus on for reproductive health, and then everything else may or may not get focused on. Being able to create primary health care centric for women veterans and being able to integrate teams that include a primary health care provider, hopefully a gynecologist, a mental health specialist, you know, proved to be very effective. And research a few years later just showed improved experience and some improved outcomes as well. So, you know, in any health system, you often get what you incentivize or you get what you measure. But a lot of that, again, is aligned with what you measure as an outcome. So, you know, our health system is designed in a way that separates women's bodies into reproductive organs and other parts, right? That's probably how you and I were trained as clinicians and how our health systems are organized, even how our reimbursement structures are are organized. And so how do you align the incentives? One way is to align incentives around creating better opportunities for transitions of care between these silos measuring differences or disparities between populations and creating incentives for healthcare leaders to track those measures and intervene. And so, for example, stratifying measures, let's say around diabetes based on gender, for example, hemoglobin A1C, if you're able to track that across institutions and you notice a difference, then what are some interventions that from a system level one can incorporate to narrow those differences? 
and, and systems can learn, but ultimately it comes down to the, you know, the team and the individual provider. Any sort of thoughts on how we might change medical education to understand both the disparities, maternal and women's health in general for those who are not in that sort of uh, that day to day? I do think that medical education plays a critical part in that. You know, I've been very heartened by the conversations and the work that the AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, how they're addressing structural racism and thinking about addressing it in, in medical education as well. Spot on, and often we don't know where our blind spots are. So. We talked about disparities, which has sort of been exacerbated in the setting of, of COVID-19. Any particular sort of examples or data you can point to that really highlight the racial disparities, particularly in maternal health? Too many people die preventable deaths during pregnancy in the United States. By the CDC's estimates, about two-thirds of pregnancy-related deaths in this country could be prevented. And we know that Black pregnant people are especially at risk and are about twice as likely during pregnancy to experience a maternal death or maternal morbidity. You know, our healthcare system doesn't work as it should for women and especially for Black women. Startling facts, like if you're a Black woman in America, regardless of your education, you're two or three times more likely to die during childbirth. And in some parts of this country, for example, New York City, you could be eight times as likely to die during childbirth. So there's definitely a need for us as a society to address this. That's massive. I mean, eight times the difference. Are there sort of uh, the 80-20 rule? Are there 20% of the situations that can be managed or better understood to impact that and bring down that massive disparity? So there are many reasons why we may have these disparities. Let's say the, the top four, you know, Black women, for example, don't get, get the care they need before or after pregnancy, a disproportionate number of Black women are uninsured. So how do we address social inequalities that are upstream, for example, and also downstream? You know, the third is when Black women seek care, they're often not taken seriously. Regardless of how educated we are or how much money we make, Black moms don't get the same respect or attention. And there's data to show that. And so take, for example, Serena Williams, healthcare providers ignored her complaints for shortness of breath. So we have a lot to learn and a lot of improvement to make. We know that the United States, despite spending the most per capita, is ranked quite low, particularly in maternal fetal issues. But we have lessons from around the world, some spending far less per individual. So it's really interesting when we look at data, women in the U.S. are more likely to die before, during, or after childbirth than women in high-income nations. You know, white women, black women, Hispanic women, indigenous people, disaggregated categories as well. Our healthcare system is failing women and we need to do better. You know, when we looked at 10 other high-income countries, we just see more investment in primary health care, which as the foundation of a healthcare system. So one is if you have a foundation of primary health care, after you give birth, you're sort of, you know, seamlessly integrated back into a healthcare system. Now, with the American Rescue Plan, there's new legislation to extend postpartum Medicaid up to one year, which is really important. Any sort of best practices for those who are listening that could be sort of more easily implemented at their community level? Well, sometimes it's really important to ask the questions and to really understand how people's living environments and working environments could impact their health. I mean, I remember having a patient once and she just 
was missing multiple, multiple visits. And in, in her note from her primary care visit, it was saying non-compliant and not listening. And when I finally got her in and spoke with her, I mean, she was working three jobs and living on her brother-in-law's couch, um, having to bury her mother in the prior year. No one had asked her those questions, right? And so in her medical record, it's just non-compliant patients. So we as clinicians need to better understand why is it that people may not be coming into our practices? Can we reach them through a phone visit? Would another type of telehealth visit be an option? Are there other providers that can see her at a different time? Yeah, we talk a lot about, you know, social determinants of health, but we often really don't even document or ask the questions about what's the patient's sort of sociome. We don't often ask if they're hungry, don't have enough money for food. So sometimes asking the simple questions, it might you know, make a, a massive difference. It's important for people to question their own, own assumptions about people that come to see them. I mean, you know, it's challenging, it's not fun, but it's important to do and it's important for growth as well. Can you tell us more about the Commonwealth Fund in general and its mission? So we function as a think tank. We've just launched a health equity fund to really focus on advancing health equity and addressing structural racism within the healthcare system and from a policy perspective as well. Primary healthcare is the foundation of any healthcare system. And so really thinking of ways to help improve that and increase that. Medicaid expansion is one example. As I mentioned, postpartum extension has been included in the American Recovery Act, which is very exciting. You know, Medicaid, instead of ending at 60 days now in terms of coverage, birthing people can have Medicaid coverage up to a year. That's an important first step. So it's one thing to identify systemic gaps and barriers, and it's another thing to address them. From a policy perspective, we're providing technical assistance to states who are interested in addressing within their Medicaid RFPs specific aspects of primary health care, incorporate high quality comprehensive primary health care from a payer perspective that incentivizes how delivery systems and providers provide care. I think that's really important to be able to really think about one, the reimbursement and driving the incentives. I think on the health system side, for models of primary health care, it's really looking at the population that you are serving. I mean, it's probably serving more than 50% women. You're probably serving a diverse population. And so one, does your leadership represent that? Two, you know, is that built into sort of your culture and ethos of the organization? And three, how are you centering that population within your walls? I think there's, that's another way to, to address that as well. We've had in the last year the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, the importance of vaccines, for example, on the communities of color and others that might have felt distrusting, let's say traditional medicine and therapies. Very early in the pandemic, you know, we didn't have initial data in terms of who the pandemic was affecting. But as the data came out, we see that Black people, Hispanic people, Indigenous people are most affected. And the question is, why is that? Do people have access to health insurance coverage? Do they have access to jobs where they can work from home? As no other time in, in my life, I mean, I'm just hearing more conversations. And I think we're also in a prime policy moment where that can also be addressed. That's really, really important to understand how structural racism impacts people's lives and impacts their health.
any meta lessons you've seen at the VA and Commonwealth that really could help catalyze that further across the planet? You know, it's an interesting, I was talking to someone at UPenn and they've developed a really interesting sort of local tool that they're piloting to be able to address bias where people can sort of enter into this tool experiences of bias. And that's discussed on a regular basis in real time fashion. I think it's a really exciting time in healthcare for sort of reimagination and and reshaping. And part of that is driven by emerging technologies. We've talked in the past about um, femtech apps to help you get pregnant or prevent pregnancy to wearables that can track the health of the mother and the fetus all the way now to startups addressing uh, needs around menopause. Are there any particular new technologies, innovations, platforms that you've seen that you're excited about that are addressing gaps in women's healthcare? You know, there's a, there's really an increasing conversation about equitable care and women's health and, and the venture and technology space. There seems to be an explosion of models trying to you know, address these various silos, whether it's menopause or infertility or contraception or or maternity care. I'm just excited about continuing to see an increase in entrepreneurs of color as well, really tackling these problems in a a really interesting and and inclusive way. For example, Google and their work in product inclusion and diversity, you know, YouTube and their health content reach, the entrepreneurs addressing silos in women's health, from menopause to maternity, there's also an opportunity to think through like how to connect these various ecosystems. Like what does it look like from the user's perspective? Is there a way to link all of these platforms, connecting them to form like a unified comprehensive care model for for women that truly recognizes the diversity of the people being served? And what's exciting, you know, we're both part of the Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellowship, which brings folks from clinical sides, from policy, from uh, venture, from the startup world together. It helps unleash uh, the power of convergence and collaboration because you can't have siloed solutions. And often the magic happens when you bring folks together. A little interesting example, the pocket ultrasound now with AI that, you know, I could probably even do an obstetric exam uh, at home enable uh, you know a nurse practitioner in a relatively rural area to do what an OB used to do uh, in the past. Any f- favorite examples of convergence or cross-fertilization you could share? Oh goodness, there's there's so many. I love what uh, City Block is doing. Their model is just very equity-centric in the middle of meeting people and patients where they're at. I love the work of like Ashley Wisdom and Health in Her Hue. It's a platform that allows people of color to access providers of color or culturally competent providers. I love the work that's happening in the menopause space, reframing life after 40. I'd love to see more innovation in the Medicaid space. I could say the last thing is around telehealth. You know, with COVID, we've just seen sort of people like flip the switch on on telehealth. I'd love to see that continue and that have payer sort of models and create sort of seamless infrastructure. Hey, you need a televisit today? Great. You need an in-person visit next week? Perfect. You know, there isn't a competing interest based on payer reimbursement. But how do you blend those sort of virtual models and in-person? And I think particularly in the setting of COVID, we've seen a lot more examples of, you know, even virtual care coming to the prenatal visit. You know, in the last year, what I think has been really interesting in the maternal health space has just been how we've reimagined the prenatal visit. I mean, it used to be you need X number, 13 prenatal visits. I remember, you know, when I was pregnant, having to go to so many prenatal visits 
can be challenging. Flip the switch with COVID, it's, you know, reinventing and saying, okay, well, you really need four or five in-person visits and these four or five televisits we can incorporate into that model as well. That's really exciting. We're entering this era of, you know, big data, but not just data, the AI and the analytics to make sense of that, but they need to be informed by the best studies that are, are not just from, you know, white European Caucasian men as their baseline, which many of the guidelines around care, whether it's for statins or others, are still still based upon. The who at the table is important. Who's on your leadership team? Um, who's on your board? Who are your advisors? You know, where's the data coming from? It's really critical to, to think about all of those things from the entrepreneur perspective, but also from the investor perspective. Speaking directly to healthcare providers, anything you'd like to add or any other uh, subjects we haven't addressed you wanna make sure we highlight and, and communicate? There's just a lot more data coming out now just to show that Black people aren't necessarily vaccine hesitant. They're increasingly interested in getting the vaccine, whether we're talking about Black and Latino and Indigenous people and other people of color. And so it's also thinking about where are vaccines given and is there actual access to vaccine? And are we providing access to vaccine to people in their communities and making sure that vaccine access is equitable? To your question around what do I tell other clinical providers? I'm also still a clinical provider. There's data showing that, for example, Black people aren't listened to when they come into healthcare settings. And we all know that particularly, you know, in life or death situations, those can have dire consequences. Lots of challenges, lots of opportunities. I want to thank you, Lori, for joining us on Healthy Conversations. Thank you for your incredibly impactful work and the lessons that you've shared that can hopefully help all of us uh, bring a, a better, healthier future for all. Thank you.